Hello and welcome to the Point of Science Ireland podcast. I'm Molly McCrory and today we're bringing you extended cuts of the Science Festival taking place in pubs across Ireland as part of International Point of Science. Today we're joined by Andrew McGovern. Andrew is a postgraduate researcher at the University of Limerick who is studying differences in metabolism and the brain between sexes. He is also a host of the Irish science podcast Living Room Logic and has a TEDx talk called Overcoming the Last Mile in Medicine. Grab a pint, it's starting. Uh, how are you doing this morning? Good, good. A bit sleepy, so I might not be as sharp as I'd like. I, I have morning voice, so that's very good for podcasts, so it's all good. <laughs> all right. So you are a neuroscientist uh, studying differences in the brain between the sexes and how sometimes certain illnesses affect one more than the other. Can you go ahead and tell us about your research? What kinds of differences do you see? Thanks. We see a lot of significant differences floating around the literature and stuff like that because we obviously know that men and women going throughout life have a lot of different things that they have to deal with and we see obvious sex differences of course in things like testicular or prostate cancer or breast cancer or cervical cancer but when I'm looking at this I'm looking at diseases we typically wouldn't associate with one sex or the other. So we see a lot of things like in Alzheimer's, which is twice as common in women than men. We see a lot of things in autoimmune diseases, which is when the immune system mistakes your own body for a disease and attacks it. We see that to be a lot more common, again, in women than men. I believe that 75% of All the people in the States, for example, with an autoimmune disorder are women. We see this all floating around. However, we also see a lot of kind of sex differences in psychiatric disorders as well, things like depression and anxiety and stuff like that. And this is where the conversation gets more difficult because it's very difficult to determine whether something is purely biologically based where it's something inside coming out or if it's something outside coming back in. Because we do see that an awful lot. We see a lot of the psychiatric conditions being very much so based in women undergoing an earlier puberty where their body will physically mature quicker, whilst the brain matures roughly at the same time. However, this increases the likelihood that a woman might experience an early life trauma at an earlier stage of brain maturity, which might have a longer, more damaging effect. How we draw these lines is extremely complicated, but it's much better to be looking at them than just putting our hands up in the air, not really knowing exactly what's going on. But those are the differences we're trying to pull apart and that we're trying to really think about. Those are kind of the differences we see. Yeah, so how much of the structure and patterning of our brain is determined by our sex? So there's actually not as much as people think. There's been a huge amount of misnomers throughout the history of science saying that men have bigger brains and therefore that is the source of their superiority and things like that. When in reality, a lot of the size of your brain comes down to how much of your body it has to map. And a lot of that was simply just men were typically bigger, they had more skin, they had more muscle, and all of that had to be mapped accordingly in the brain. So most of 
men's brains might be bigger, they might have more white and grey matter, but that'll be specifically for mapping to a specific muscle. It won't have anything to do with actually thinking or being intelligent or anything like that. So we we see this all the time, and this goes everywhere. We we see this in lots of different brain areas where once you actually control for individual differences, you lose it. There was a lot of things talking about the amygdala, which is a lot to do with like fear contextualization, and uh, which is heavily associated with trauma and things like the hippocampus, which is again to do with memory. And it was always uh, men or women were had this much larger. Typically, it would always be men have the bigger bigger part of the brain. But when you take into account individual differences, when you take into account the fact that men are typically larger and you just bring it down to an average, we really lose these significant differences. Now, there are parts of the brain that are sexually dimorphic. Uh, Some of them are to do with things like sex motivation and stuff like that. It's not like there's a part of the brain that's only in a man or only in a woman that is only there to do manly or womanly things that it really just comes down to the fact that we are simply just people and it's not as dimorphic as people think but we do see differences once we take it down a notch and once we actually stop looking at the surface level and take a deeper dive into what's going on within the cells because we have a lot of sex hormones which are regulating what's going on within our cells and they regulate absolutely everything. So uh, we have a lot of things in our body which send signals flying around the place. We have a lot of proteins that go around and they attach to the top of cells and send signals down. But what's interesting about hormones is they're made of fats, they're made of lipids and oils, which means they just go into any cell they want and they can go straight to the genetic material and make their changes. There's no barrier there really for a lipid. So we see a lot of these hormones having wide acting effects. They go straight into the brain and the brain is very fatty anyway. And they will just have really, really core impacts. Now, what we see is they regulate a lot of things like metabolism. They regulate a lot of things like homeostasis, which is to do with the cells management system of making sure they are producing enough energy whilst also managing the waste they are producing. And we we, we see the brain kind of programmed to become a little bit dependent on these hormones, which later in life, when there are declines in these hormones, there's a sudden switch and there's a reprogramming that has to take place. And we don't see this in men as much because men have a very natural low uh, reducing of testosterone, which is very gradual and it's slow in the same way that it would be to come off any drug that is safe and that is something the body can handle. However, women, on the other hand, have to go through menopause, which is not like that. It is dysregulation, it is dysfunction, it is disruption, where one day they are coursing with estrogen and the next day they are not. And then the next day they get estrogen again and the next day they don't. And eventually they just stop producing as much of this endogenous estrogen from their ovaries. And what we see is that in women around menopause in particular, the cells in the brain undergo this metabolic reprogramming where there's a shock to the system, where estrogen had always been there coursing through the body to assist in regulating the production of waste. We see that when menopause hits, 
there is a reprogramming that takes place. And in that period, the brain is quite vulnerable. And we see this having a lot of lasting effects throughout life stages, particularly in later life, where menopause is a huge risk factor for a large, large number of different diseases, with my main focus being mostly neurodegenerative, which makes a bit of sense when you think about it, when estrogen is giving such a regulatory impact, the second there's a disruption in it, it kind of leaves space for neurodegeneration to occur. Awesome. Thank you. So sometimes research, we kind of alluded to this earlier, but sometimes research can be co-opted to advance prejudice or discriminatory beliefs. You know, seeing stuff like research shows men are better at maths or women are more caring or whatever. Do you ever worry about your research being taken the wrong way or people taking the wrong answers from your research? Um, I think it already has. I think it's very, very difficult to not because in reality, when people hold biases, they'll find any piece of information to assert said bias, even if your information doesn't say that. If they think it says that, that's what they'll read. So I, I, I think it's something I have to be very conscious of all of the time, because when I'm talking about sex differences, people often assume, ah, there are sex differences. Therefore, this devalidates progression in society around transgender and things like that. And they're saying, no, there's just two. Look at this person pioneering this. And I'm like, no, that's just not <laughs> at all what I'm saying. I, I'm, I'm literally just looking at what's going on in the body and honestly just trying to see how people could die less. And that would be fantastic. You know, it, it, it really has nothing to do with who you are, you know. So I, I think that comes up an awful lot. It does get tiring sometimes getting messages from people on TikTok or Instagram where they're like, wow, and how does this impact this? Or like, I knew we were better at that. And I'm just like, Oh my God! Well done. You're 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 better at not dying of Alzheimer's. This is a <laughs> this is a, a huge achievement for mankind. You know, it's just so it, it absolutely does come up all of the time, and I have to be very very careful when I'm speaking to make sure I'm just talking about the physical differences. Like I don't do this, but down the line, that hopefully work I'm doing would help inform knowing these differences because uh, a lot of what I'm doing in particular as well is looking at how my PhD is a lot on hormone replacement therapy how that impacts males versus females genetically and this is very relevant and very important for trans people who go through transitions using hormone replacement therapy where we actually don't know a whole lot about what estrogen coursing through somebody with XY chromosomes do and this is just from a, a bias, which we will get to in the future gone by. But it, it's also not really good enough because we need to understand what that does. Just because someone is trans doesn't mean they deserve worse health care, for example, or less informed health care. So that's equally important. So, yeah, I, I think people really do take the wrong answers from my research. But I think you could do any research. And if someone was trying to really find the wrong answer, they'd find it. And I think it's more so something I have to be so conscious of when I'm communicating about my research more than anything, to make sure I'm not talking about an individual. I'm not talking about who someone is, because that's so diverse and complex and so different to everything. And that I'm just talking about chemicals and proteins and genetics and things like that, because... 
other otherwise i i'm treading on water which i don't actually want to tread on and i can't tread on because once we get into something that that's unique between individuals there's too many variables scientists we don't like that <laughs> so i'm just sticking <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just cutting, cutting down on it absolutely and as well there's rising public awareness i know uh specifically the book invisible women that i've read talks about this about how women and their bodies have been historically underrepresented in medical research clinical trials uh your research focuses specifically you're mentioning on the on the brains of women so are you sometimes, are you ever uh, frustrated by this historical disparity in data? Yeah. Um, so, no, it's it's exactly how I got into the, the area, How I exactly how I got into the field. I remember I was in third year neuroscience in UCC, and we were just sitting back in a lecture on research methods. And uh, it was kind of thrown out there just in the side and all of these mice are male and they were like oh we don't really use the female mice unless we're looking at pregnancy studies and I was kind of just sitting there just it it was one of those moments where I wasn't paying any attention and suddenly I was and I was like why not and they were like oh it's just not how it's done and I was just like that seems kind of stupid. <laughs> I was just like, why? What is the logic here? And it's just one of those very sad moments when you you ask that question enough times and eventually someone says it's cheaper and you're just like, ah, oh, it would break your heart. So when I was going into college, I was very much so I wanted to like study something that was really unknown. That was that was my thing. I was like, I want to go into somewhere and just be wildly confused for the rest of my life. I want to be completely unaware of what I'm going to figure out, just completely blind to the situation. And when I found that, I was like, this is nuts. It is nuts that there is an entire half of existence that has not been studied. Why is this not a thing? So uh, that's exactly how I got into the field, because I got very, very frustrated. And I was I, I did a TED talk not too long ago, a TEDx talk in UCC as well, talking about exactly this. And I, I was listening back to it, and I was like, ooh, I, I'm a bit ranty. It is just <laughs> getting a, a little bit mad, because it, it makes me sick. It, it makes me very frustrated all of the time. You're thinking back to, like, the geniuses of history that are always painted on walls and you see them up with quotes and you're like, yeah, but these exact same people also did all of their work in men and just put women to the side. All of these people had mothers and sisters and daughters and they were like, ah, close enough. You know, it's like, if it works for men, for women, it'll do, you know, it'll it'll be grand. And like, in saying all of that, there, there's so much amazing work that was done throughout the 60s, 70s and 80s to like, get women into clinical trials and get this going and show that drugs going onto the market weren't good enough. Because th- there was a huge crisis following thalidomide. Thalidomide was when there was a drug that was produced to treat morning sickness that hadn't gone through enough testing previously. In fact, they didn't, at that time, have to show that they had tested it in people or anything, which is kind of dodgy when you're thinking about a drug that has to be given to pregnant women. And naturally what this drug did was it made a hames of itself and it produced children with birth defects. And this went all over the world and completely made all of scientific research in humans rigid. And the problem was it overshot 
And they went from saying, oh, maybe we should actually test in women before we give them a drug to saying, don't test in women at all. Don't test in women one bit because on the off chance that they're pregnant, we do not have the right to consent to a fetus which could be in development, la 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 la. Which, you know, you can understand the thinking in a panic where they're like, no, we can't do this again. However, it also, it speaks to the times where at the time they were kind of just saying women weren't able to consent to this risk. Men were, but women had this right to consent to a risk about what's going on inside their body and decisions that they're making. They don't have the right to do that. They were seen seen unable to do that. So this happened throughout the 60s and 70s, and it was in the 80s where, like, medicine was pretty good for men, and for women it was pretty trash. And people kept bringing it up and bringing it up, and there was a society for women scientists and and science in women as well in the States that really kept pushing for this and really kept pushing for this. And it wasn't until we were kind of seeing Supreme Court cases around that time making sure that women could actually, like not get jobs whilst they're pregnant and stuff like that, that they were kind of saying, oh, maybe we should give these pregnant women rights, you know, and and we were seeing this kind of turnover where you could see the FDA come and the National Institute of Health come under more and more pressure throughout the late 80s and 90s saying, okay, we have not banned women anymore. And and then they they took away the ban, but they didn't make it mandatory. So basically nothing changed. (laughs) All of the institutes, all of the people who were already doing studies, they were like, okay, we're just going to keep working on half the population. It's a lot cheaper. It's a lot easier. We know what we're doing. And there's no evidence to show that what we're doing is wrong, which is a huge logical fallacy because an absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. It's a phrase I use all the time for sex differences research because people are like, yeah, but where's the evidence? And I'm like, we didn't do it yet. We we haven't looked at it. How can you tell me that there's no evidence when you haven't looked at it yet? You can't just say, well, no one's looked at it, so therefore it's wrong. It's like your scientists think a little harder, you know? So basically this kept happening and then they eventually just made it mandatory in 93 or 94. And it wasn't until 2016 that they made it preclinically mandatory to include males and females in getting these drugs two clinical trials. So I'm sure you can imagine, based off me going very ranty there, I do feel quite strongly about this, and I find it quite ridiculous. I try to I try to soothe myself by thinking selfishly and thinking, I find it that I'm very lucky. I think it's really cool that I'm able to come in and ask quite simple questions and get quite novel answers, and then show people and be like, I bet you didn't think this would happen, and It's just shocking. But I think down the line, it will eventually bring people's focus into sex being a biological variable worth really looking at. Because we really, really, really need to, like, untangle this because there's so much going on. And uh, it's also a big way of where medicine and research is going, where we're moving towards a more precise version of medicine. We're moving to more individual-based And for me, anyway, I think the first way to, like, split the pie is male-female. What's going on in the body? What's going on there? What's the genetic background? And then after that, 
you split it again. And you could split it again to people who maybe had a late puberty or an early puberty or people who have more testosterone going through their body or people who have less testosterone going through their body. And then you can talk about all of the differences in their experiences and all of that and how this all in- intermingles. But I think to get to that first point, we have to look at the sex differences. But the problem to do that is going to cost money. And what the research institutes really hate is if you want to do the same research in males and females, it's going to cost twice as much or you're going to get half as much done. That's the reality of good science. And I I think that's just something that we have to bite. Yes, the constant problem of needing the money. Yeah, it comes up all the time. And you've mentioned in our emails that you're going on a research exchange fellowship. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, I I applied for an exchange fellowship with the International Brain Research Organization to go to the Cajal Institute in Madrid, which I'm so excited for, minus the language barrier. But I'm super, super excited for it. So essentially what I'm going to go over to is to work with a collaborating lab who have a fascinating animal model for studying sex differences. Now, this model is called the four core genotype model. And what they do is they knock out the gene in XY mice, so mice that would typically progress into males, and they knock out the gene that develops the testicles. So basically what this means is you'll develop mice with XY chromosomes, which will develop ovaries. And then you go into X. X mice, so mice that would typically become female, and you add in the gene that would develop testicles, and then you have XX mice, which will develop testicles. And now what we're going to be doing with these mice is we're going to be able to validate some of the work I've already been doing and determine whether something is gonadal or hormonal in initial influence or if something is purely genetic. Because if we see something only in the XY, for example, we'll know that that is a male genetic factor irrespective of the presence of testicles or ovaries. If we see something that is only present in the mice with the ovaries, we know that that is very likely something to do with estrogen. It's something to do with gonadal hormones coursing through the system. So I'm very, very much so looking forward to seeing Madrid in the autumn and working with that model and the brilliant team they have over there who have been so gracious to even offer to help me come over and honestly get some really critical results for my PhD, which which we all need. <laughs> we all need. <laughs> that sounds awesome. We touched on this a bit before, but can you talk about the biggest misconceptions you think people have about what you do? I think the biggest misconception I've had, and I've had it a few times where I've given a talk where someone assumes that because I'm trying to show that there are differences between males and females, I'm trying to invalidate the existence of trans people. And, and that, that that is surprisingly common. And it's shocking. I, I'm always stunned when, when these people come up to me and they're like, pal! And I'm like, what the hell is going on? I'm just so shocked and I'm just and I'm trying to be like no 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 I just I want all people to live longer is that is that such a bad thing and I I think that's a huge misconception I think that alignment of the fact that there are differences between the averages of males and females and that is an important point to make that when I'm talking about this I'm not saying all males are like this and all females are like this I'm saying 
at the average, when we take a male or we take a female, at the average, there are differences. There are biological differences that not only are there, but need to be considered for people's general well-being. But the reality is this happens on a bit of a spectrum and a bit of a pendulum and trying to figure out what causes that spectrum and what puts people is the next step. The very next step after we have determined that there are sex differences is taking the average, taking the graph of all of the males or the graph of all of the females and figuring out which females are at higher risk, which females are at lower risk and going from there. And people like to see things simply because it's more relaxing. And I think when you're doing good science communication, you have to make things relatively as straightforward and as comprehensible as possible. But I think it's also very important to acknowledge in the work I'm doing and dealing with these misconceptions that I have is that it's not simple. And that's the point. The The point is I I am the one simplifying it. It's not that it's simple. I am simplifying it because that's we kind of have to do that as scientists. I, I'm taking the entirety of male's existence and the entirety of female's existence and putting that in a box instead of just taking all of existence. So I've I've just half the box. That's all I've done. I haven't done anything like amazing or groundbreaking. There's so many variables within these halves. But the thing is, once we have these boxes understood, we can then cut that box into pieces and keep cutting it up until we have an individual blueprint and roadmap of what's going on inside an individual's body that might put them at higher risk at a very, very complex level. And I think we will get there eventually, um, probably probably in like 30, 40 years where someone will be able to like take your information and actually get a little chart of the things we should be careful of and look out for. And we see things all the time coming out about like the gut microbiome and stuff. And I absolutely also think that we'll kind of see things where people are like, we encourage you to eat this kind of food and this kind of diet. And we might even monitor your gut microbiome to see what's going on because we believe you're at risk of this, that and the other. And we have this evidence showing there is a connection there. I think that kind of stuff is all down the line. And I think once we get to that point, there might be a coming together of the people who believe you can just live well to be well. And where we can actually say, actually, if you just live this way, you you have the best likelihood of being well. And I, I, I think that's somewhere we'll eventually get. And I think it's just so important when we're communicating the science, especially with sex differences, which is such a sensitive topic in society and amongst public discourse when you're talking about it, because people have so many assumptions about it. I think it's so important that I also talk about how complicated it is. And also, to be honest, how unrelated to gender it is as well. Where I'm talking about the bricks and mortar here. I'm not talking about the design and the architecture and the expression and the way that you actually make a house a home. You know, I'm I'm just talking about the things that need repairing. And I think drawing that line and talking about the complexity is probably the biggest misconception about the research I'm doing and about the work I'm doing. Um, I, I do a lot of public stuff, like I have a podcast and then I'm doing a lot of teaching and people think that I'm just going around doing all this cool stuff. I, I sit at a desk and, <laughs> and, I, and I stare at a spreadsheet 
I get a headache, I get a cup of tea, and I change my job and do something else for an hour. And then I come back and I look at it again and I get frustrated and I do something else for an hour if I can. And so I'm, I do the same as everyone else. I procrastinate far too much and far too comfortably. And I, 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 it's not all fireworks. It's it's the same thing as the social media life versus your actual day to day. Like it's not all pipettes and and presentations and awards. It's it's mostly just writing and frustration. And you know, I think that's a lot of jobs. So I think that's just typical of the day to day. Yeah, and I mean, one of the things we're trying to do with this podcast here is that fine line of simplifying things enough that people can understand without oversimplifying that's just a line we all have to walk as science communicators so if people want to find you get some more out of you where can they where can they find you you can find me in a few different places for science communication stuff i have a podcast called living room logic our science podcast where we interview a lot of researchers it's myself and my co-host Aidan Long Aidan is a climate researcher I think he's currently a consultant and I'm a neuroscientist so we typically interview people and bring our own look and expertise to these conversations I like talking a lot about health and like biological sciences and things like that whilst Aidan's much more focused on the climate and policy and things like that so we we tend to interview people you can find us at living room logic on instagram and if you're looking for me in particular i'm on instagram and on tiktok at scientist ireland um just having putting up weird videos when i very rarely have time and uh, <laughs> mostly these days, it's just clips of the podcast because, you know, I don't have as much time as I used to. I, I was making a lot of videos during COVID and I was part of a team that was helping the Department of Health to, like, communicate messages. And then th- that project ended and then we went into the winter lockdown at the cross from 2020 to 2021. And, um, you know, like everyone else, I had so much more time on my hands then. And I was making videos nearly twice a day. Um, out of sheer, what do I do with my hands at this moment? Uh, so, so I still, I still post, but it's mostly about the podcast. Uh, if you're trying to like contact me directly, your best bet is going through the Instagram and sending a message, and we see them all. And uh, as long as they're roughly kind, I will reply. Uh, and is there anywhere you'd like to recommend people go for their science news? So I, there, a few places. The, the main place I go for big stories is SciShow on YouTube with Hank Green and them. I think SciShow always put up videos when there's big, big news in the area. If you're looking for specific health-related stuff, I'd recommend Healthcare Triage on YouTube. Um, there is a doctor in the States who produces this channel and they are brilliant. Brilliant videos for just very fact-based, very... Just dealing with the information on pages and communicating it, it's very, very, very good. Uh, if you're looking for something more casual, New Scientist is always a solid place to look for just easygoing stories. If you're looking for something more National Geographic, I'd recommend Scientific American. Um, even though I am definitely someone who generally puts out a lot of science news on TikTok, I've learned better. I'm not recommending TikTok. You know, I re- <laughs> you, you can follow me. I recommend that. Follow me for sure. But if, if you want to know where to learn science stuff, go to the things I mentioned. They're, they're very good institutions, which are 
based around making sure they're developing fact-based information as opposed to individuals on TikTok who are humans and humans make mistakes. So, you know, it's just a safer bet. But follow me all the same at Scientist Ireland. <laughs> Do it all the same. <laughs> all right. Awesome. Great. Thank you so much. That's everything for this episode. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to find out more about us or Pint of Science Ireland, follow at Pint of Science IE on Twitter and Instagram and find us wherever you get your podcasts. Andrew can be found on TikTok at Scientist Ireland. You can also find his podcast, Living Room Logic, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was made with the editing assistance of Brian Kennedy and Kate Finucane. Research assistance was from Brian Kennedy and Molly McCrory. Thanks to the co-directors of Point of Science Ireland for 2022, Anna Wedderburn and Ashley Gorman, as well as SFI. And thanks again to Andrew for joining us on this episode. Point of Science Ireland is part of the global initiative Point of Science, which aims to bring the research to you, the people that fund it. We'll see you next month. This has been Molly McCrory.